Hello, this is Aaron Guile, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversations. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And what an awesome story today's interview has had. His name is Aaron Guile. He played in Kansas City from 2002 to 2006. Mostly remembered for 2003 when he led off a good majority of that magical 2003 Kansas City Royals season. But there's a lot of stories you may not know about with Aaron Guile. Starting off with the fact that he played parts of 10 seasons in the minor leagues before he got that first major league call up. He played in the Mexican League for part of that. After his career, he played with the Yankees briefly and then in Japan where he was a longtime teammate of current Royal Noriaoki. Aaron Guile tells us about those things and so many more as he joins us on Clubhouse Conversation. Welcome on board, Aaron. And first of all, tell us how things have been going for you. Uh, everything's great. You know, enjoying my family, um, enjoying pseudo retirement and uh, just kind of, you know, although it's been three years since I've I've retired. It's you know it's taken most of that time to to settle into life without baseball. So, but but uh, I'm really enjoying it. You still watching quite a bit of baseball? You know what? Um, MLB tonight and Sports Center is is a lot of what I've I uh, do to catch up. I don't. Um, I haven't really. I think I've watched one game live um, huh. since I retired, and I try to. You know, I, I talk to certain guys and um, try to catch up, but you know it. it very seldom unless my son wants to watch a game do I sit down on the couch and take it in. How's your brother doing? I know he made it up to AAA with uh, both Anaheim and Toronto. Everything good with him? Yeah, he's uh, he's up in Vancouver. I'm, I'm, and now I'm relocated into Phoenix, but now he's in Vancouver. and um, he's He had retired, and now he's a, a West Vancouver police officer. So he's he's on the next stage of his life. and he, uh, He's doing very, very well. Well, I've got to ask you something right away that's uh, pretty cool to the 2014 Royals. You were a teammate of Nori Aoki, obviously, with the Tokyo Swallows for, for several years. What's Nori like? You know what? When, uh, he's, he's a very outgoing guy, very charismatic guy. He, he uh, plays with a lot of passion, uh, enjoys the game. Um, my experience with him as a, as a foreigner, you know, being in Japan and playing with him, he was very welcoming to me as, as a foreigner and being aware that that uh, life at first is, is a little difficult, but he was one of the first guys to go out of the way to to make me feel welcome. And, and he himself, when I first started, he was quite a young player. So um, that that's him as a person. He's just he's got a really uh, really fun personality and a guy who who is um, you know you root for. Um, baseball wise, you know the guy's got he's got a lot of skills. He he can run. He can hit for average. Um, he's got a, a high base, high baseball IQ, and um, you know he creates a lot of havoc on the base path, and and uh, can really go get it on the outfield. So when I heard that that he was picked up, uh, I was really excited because I knew that the Royals um, had had difficulty finding someone to fit that role for them over the last few years. Have you talked to him at all since he got to KC? We exchanged some text messages, and we were trying to get together for for a dinner over uh, spring training. Um, but I really didn't want. I know that spring training is a difficult time um, as well, so I I didn't really want to encroach on his time. So we exchanged some text messages, and we had a dinner schedule. We didn't get it together, so uh, we've just kind of gone back and forth a little bit, and we're making plans for the future. But I know that that um, you know as much as he needed to focus on on uh, you know making an impression with that Royals club and the Royals fans, I I wanted to just leave him alone, but. Um, I definitely sent some some messages of encouragement and and let him know that if if there's anything that that I could do to help him, you know, with with some advice, I'd you know be more than happy to. Well, we'll talk more about your times in Japan later, but let's uh, let's go back to the good old days. You grew up in British Columbia. You played at uh, Woodland Senior High School, and then, if I remember correctly, you didn't start playing baseball until fairly late in your childhood. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. In Canada, you know, obviously baseball is the number one sport. You got hockey. You know the number one sport by far. Um, there was no high school baseball. There was no college baseball in Canada when I came up, um, and so I I began uh, probably 
11 years old and, you know, just playing for a, for a little club team in, on Vancouver Island in, in town called Nanaimo. Um, this is recent, right after um, the divorce of my parents. So we moved away and, and we got started there and, and you know, my, my older brother and my younger brother and myself, we all played and, um, you know, the options are, the options are limited. You know, it's baseball up there is no different than, than just club soccer or, or any other sport. You know, it's just a sport that you play. But growing up in Canada, especially at the age when, where I was, um, you don't really look too far ahead. You know, you watch baseball games on TV and you admire these guys. But, but in Canada, um, you don't really look and see yourself being in there. You just admire these guys as athletes. So um, it wasn't something that, that I thought was going to take me anywhere at 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. I just played it because I enjoyed it. And then it wasn't really until I continued on um, right around uh, maybe a senior year in high school that I started to make traveling teams and touring teams and, and the opportunity to maybe play after high school came around. Yeah, well, you went to uh, Kwantlen College there in British Columbia. So was baseball what made you go there then? It was. Uh, when I graduated high school, I, just, I was given a scholarship to an organization called the National Baseball Institute. Uh, it was a college-level program, um, and the only kind, the only one of its kind in Canada, uh, because of the lack of college and university baseball. If you were in, if you were Canadian at the time, the only way you were going to to um, get any further was to go south of the border and go to the United uh, a college in the United States. So this one organization, the National Baseball Institute, would get these players all together from across Canada, and you could go to any 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 uh, two-year or four-year school you wanted. You just got together and played for this one team. Um, all of our games were against teams in Washington State, Idaho, Oregon, and California. And it was a it was the same organization that Larry Walker had played for, Matt Stairs had played for, uh, Corey Kosky, uh, and a few other guys. Um, so that was that was my opportunity to go. I, but I still, even at that point, I was really looking to get a college education and play a little baseball at the same time. And it wasn't until after my first year there. Um, you know, coming close to the draft that I had spoken with a California Angels scout that I thought that that was you know, maybe a, a reality down the road. What would you have done if you wouldn't have played baseball? What were your other dreams in life? You know, I, you know when I was in high school, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, you know, Even when I graduated high school, I didn't go straight to this NBI. I took a year off to work um, for my family business. Um, you know, they had their own apartment buildings, so I was going clean and apartment buildings, paying apartment buildings, and I really just wanted to enjoy my, my, my summer out of, out of high school. So I wasn't really thinking too far ahead, uh, even though I, had, I did have an offer to, of a scholarship to go to this, this organization. I declined and just continued playing summer ball. Um, and fortunately, the this, this same coach that offered me the scholarship at the beginning, he you know, came back to me after that one year um, and offered it again, and I, I accepted the second time. And, um, you know, I I guess the rest kind of that's when it started to go in the direction of, of pro ball because uh, my performance started to get better. I was playing more, my skills were being sharpened. I was I was being watched by a you know a few scouts and we were playing against pretty good schools. So that was when that was when the kind of the lights started to go on that that either I could maybe go south to a really good U.S. college or university, or or, or the possibility might come that I could get drafted. Well, you did the twenty-first round, then of the ninety-two draft. You mentioned the Angels have been talking to you, so I'm sure you probably weren't very, you know, shocked that you got picked there. What do you, what do you remember? You know, like, what are your memories of the day you got drafted? Well, I remember because I was, yeah, I, I, don't, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but I was lying in bed and I got awoken by the by the phone, and I picked it up and it was, you know, hello, Aaron. It was it's the so and so from the California Angels. Congratulations, you've been drafted in the twenty-first round, and I was still really groggy. <laughs> and I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, man, that was, you know, it's pretty cool. But I had, I had almost no idea what that really meant. I knew that, um, you know, I'd been drafted by a major league team, but I, I really didn't know whether that meant, you know, I, I definitely didn't know that meant it was going to be a 19-year career, you know, with, you know, 10 years in the minor leagues and five years in Japan. Uh, but I thought it was kind of a, it was a, something to be proud of. It was, I knew that a door had opened up. I didn't know what that that was going to, where it was going to take me, but um, I knew it was a, a definite step in, in a different direction, and I was excited. And you know, right after that, I, I, I did talk to um, some of those scouts. I did talk to players, and and you know, just try to get an idea of what to expect. And 
and uh, that's kind of uh, that was kind of the start of it. Yeah, you had some nice years too, from '93 to '97 with the Angels in the minor leagues. I didn't realize until I researched this interview that you were a second and third baseman during those times. So, had you always played infield? Had you played any outfield at that age growing up? Well, the the, the touring team, the, the the National Baseball Institute team in Vancouver, um, the coach there, his name is John Har, and he was, uh, I believe, he was he was a, a draft pick way back of the Yankees and. The guy had a, a real good knowledge, but what he, what he was, what he was trying to do is he was trying to project me. So I was an outfielder, um, and he he thought that if I was going to go pro, that I would be valuable to at least be a utility guy or a second or third baseman. So he started to play me a little bit better. So when the Angels drafted me, um, they I, they drafted me as an outfielder, but I we had conversations and I informed them that you know, I could play the infield as well. So. When I when I did join the, the Angels in uh, in Mesa, um, they told me they had more of a need at second base than they did in the outfield. And uh, um, you know, I, at at my age, they were looking to try to move me out of the Arizona League. So they had sent me to Boise, Idaho, on my first assignment, and they were already stacked in the outfield. So they had a spot at second base. They inserted me there, and, and uh, you know, offensively, I. You know, I did quite well, but defensively was, you know, was when you're when you're down there with guys who've been playing playing the position your whole life, and uh, it's it's a whole different story than than college. And so, although although my career, you know, it lasted four or five years in the minor leagues at that position, you know, I could tell that it was a position that that um, was going to take a lot of a lot of work for me to be polished enough to play at a high level. So uh, it was quite a struggle the first few years. You got traded by the Angels to the Padres then at the end of the 97 season. Uh, what were your thoughts on that trade at that time? Well, I, was, I was really excited about the trade. You know, the year before, in 96, um, I had a, had a really strong year, made the, uh, the uh, All-Star game in Texas League, and I thought it was, I thought it was going to be moving on up, especially with, with, uh, in the Angels at that time. The AAA team was the Vancouver Canadians, so I was going to be going back home. So as I finished that, that uh, 1996 season, I was um, I thought it was only gonna it was just a foregone conclusion that I would be in AAA and in Vancouver the following year. Um, when I did report to spring training the following year, um, you know I was really disappointed because not only they had moved me from second to third base, but they had kept me at AA, and so obviously I wasn't pleased. But but. Uh, I ended up repeating almost the entire year in Midland, Texas, with no call-up. Uh, although my my stats weren't as strong that second year, I did make the All-Star game again, and and then I figured that I was going to finish off the last little bit of the season in Midland. Uh, but it was I'm trying to remember the exact day. It was in August. Um, I was traded to San Diego Padres, and I joined their their uh, their Double A team in Mobile as they were getting ready for their Southern League championship. So um, when I heard about the news of being drafted, although I was I was excited about going to Vancouver and I was excited about maybe advancing with the team that had drafted me, you know, even at that age, I knew that, that maybe at that at that time I was spinning my wheels a little bit. So I knew that a change was, was uh, going to be a good thing for me. You spent 97 to 99 with the Padres organization and played in the Pan Am games in 99. What was that experience like? Well, it was my first real experience of playing for my country, and you know, so many guys that I had played with in Canada had played either in the junior nationals or the senior national program, and you know, gone to different places around the world. So, um, you know, they had all spoken about wearing, you know, your your country's colors and and just the experience of going to play in those international tournaments. So, um, when I was when I was asked to go to that, I was you know, I was very excited, and it was my first time. You know, you only get so many chances in your life to, you know, to play for your country. Um, it's a little easier in countries like Canada and maybe Australia to do it. But still, it's, you know, I had that chance to go. And, um, you know, we had, uh, at that time, we had, you know, a Justin Morneau who was actually on the bench. So we had huh. we had some really good players that, and I think Jason Bay was there also. So we had some really good players kind of waiting to, to make an impact that time. That was quite some time ago. But, um you know, to be there in an amateur tournament, but also wear your country's colors was was the first of about you know three or four times I was able to do it. But you know, it was, 
it was a great experience. You started the 2000 season in the Mexican League then and were completely dominating down there. Uh, before we talk about the Royals bringing you back to America, uh, what are your favorite memories of playing in the Mexican League, and what was that experience like? Well, the, t- the, the situation came about because in 2000, um, I finished in 99 with the Padres. Um, and although it wasn't a great finish, I thought I would still have an opportunity to, to become a six-year free agent and sign with another club. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the circumstances, but my agent, you know, I, I thought sometime before Christmas I would have a contract. But as I sat at home in February, I was still without something. And finally my agent called and said, this was probably uh, getting late February, said that the Oakland Athletics had a, a spot for me. So I couldn't wait to rush to get down. Uh, but by the time I got down to spring training, a lot of the rosters had been, you could tell they'd been set. And uh, long story short, they I failed my physical with, with Oakland, and I was released um, the following day. Um, although, you know, my shoulder strength was fine, they just found something little, and I failed. So I had two choices. I I could either I could either pack up my bags and head back to Vancouver, um, or I could go down to Mexican League. And uh, I was really I had gotten to know because I had played winter ball in Mexico in um, you know ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. So I was really familiar with the league and a lot of the players and a lot of the scouts down there. So I had called one of the guys, and I had also instructed my current agent, one of my agent at the time, to look for something. So more or less the first guy to call me, you know, was pretty much the job I was going to take. And I don't, it was that night or it was the day after I got a call that um, there was a a team in Oaxaca in southern Mexico that that had an opening. So, So I went straight from my hotel in Phoenix straight down to Oaxaca. So it was, Quite a leap of faith, um, you know, because it's they there. I was the only English-speaking player on the team, and uh, I just I just assumed that I'd play three, four, five months, man, um, make a little money, and and uh, go back and start my life. And uh, I I was actually really wrong. Wow! Yeah, June thirteenth of that year, two thousand. The Royals signed you. So, what do you remember about the day you signed with the Royals, and how'd you find that? You know, how'd you find out? Did you get some calls or any memorable story about how the Royals found you? Well, it was a it was a it was a really crazy day. Uh, we were we were in Oaxaca, and we had a road trip to uh, I think it was, it was on the Yucatan Peninsula. But to go from from Oaxaca, you had to take a flight to Mexico City and have a connection to go to the Yucatan Peninsula. As I was walking onto the tarmac, I got a phone call from my agent saying, the Kansas City Royals want you. And I said, fantastic, what's the catch? And he said, well, but they're not willing to pay you for your any buyout for your contract. And I know full well that most Mexican teams have a buyout, so I couldn't get an answer at the time. So I had to get on that flight. He, he told me they needed me to fly out the following day. So I called my um, the scout and the agent, and he said, you know, you better get on that flight just in case it doesn't work out. So I got on the flight, and when we were in the connection in Mexico City, the agent, the agent that had helped facilitate me getting down to Mexico called the owner, and the owner allowed me to get out of my contract. But I had to continue on the connection to get my, my, my baseball gear and my personal gear. So they had to take another two-hour flight. I had to pick that up, immediately turn around and retrace my steps. Only when I got to Mexico City, there was no connection. So I had to hop on... I had to hop in a taxi, take that about 30 minutes across town in Mexico City, and hop on a Greyhound, take a Greyhound bus through the middle of the night, and get back into Oaxaca at about 6 a.m. And when I got back into to Oaxaca at 6 a.m., I had to turn around and go to the office to get my money to get paid, pack up my stuff in my apartment, and then catch a flight in the morning. And then, uh, you know, it was a long day, and I ended up landing in Edmonton that night. Wow, what is but I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait because it's you know something when when the uh, when the Royals had called uh, a week before that, ten days before that, I had called my agent in the United States and said, "I'm I can't do this anymore. I'm done. If if I don't have something very soon, you know, I'm going to be packing up and heading home." So I don't know whether it was just chance luck or or he actually got out and started working the phone, but it uh, you know something came around and. And uh, I joined the, the Royals AAA team, and you know when they were on the road in Edmonton. 
wow. And you, so yeah, you were one of the rare, one of the few golden spikes. They weren't golden spikes for very long, but uh, that year combined, you hit 35 home runs between Omaha and the Mexican League, 102 RBIs, 102 runs, 87 walks. So what were your thoughts on your first half season in Omaha then as you headed into that winter? Well, I was happy to, I was happy that, that my career had kind of kick-started again. Um, I had a lot of good friends with the Royals, Mike Sweeney and Jeremy Carr. Um, you know, they were two longtime friends of mine. Um, you know, and, and so I was, I was joining a team with guys I was familiar with, with, and that comfort level went a long way. Um, but and although although Mike was in the big leagues, you know, he was a guy that I could call and and uh, get some advice. And you know, even to this day, he's still one of my dear friends. And you know, it's. Some of the some of the personnel that were there, and they were obviously they were from 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 before the uh, through Dayton Moore, but there was just some such quality guys. So when I joined the team in Omaha, um, I just I felt at home, and 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 I feel like I played you know really comfortably and 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 played hard, and and I felt like that's where I should be. So going into this in the, into the off season, um, I w- I wasn't optimistic I was going to get an opportunity to come to big league camp. You know, I was crossing my fingers and hoping that I had kind of come on the radar, but I was also realistic enough to know that that um, you know draft picks and high profile guys were were the guys that get to join the team um, at big league camp. So um, I just really thought that that it was going to be a situation where I, I I went into camp and and would have to you know earn my shot. And, you know, fortunately, I, I think I I opened up a few enough eyes so that you know they, they gave me an opportunity. What kind of uh, jobs and things were you doing back then in the off season? Well, I was still I was doing baseball camps. I was my family uh, owned owned real estate and, and commercial real estate in Vancouver. They had apartment buildings, so I would I would go home and I'd work at those apartment buildings and I'd do anything from from you know clearing suites and painting you know individual apartment buildings to you know kind of whatever whatever they needed me to do. And, it was you know, guys will tell you how how pitiful the, the pay is in the minor leagues that uh, that uh, everybody goes to work in the off season and you scrounge to get enough money so that at least during that that next coming season you know you can eat a little bit you can take care of yourself a little bit you don't have to stress you can just worry about the game but most guys I knew had to had to get a little job in the off season. Yeah, well, you came back to Omaha then in 2001. OPS 840, 21 jacks, 73 RBIs, but you didn't get that September call-up. Uh, but what are your favorite memories? I know you went back there for several more years, parts of several years, but what are your favorite memories of Omaha, both on and off the field? Well, it was, you know, I, there was there were some really good players there. I, I had, um, you know, two pretty good managers, and John Mizorak and, and uh, Mike Jersley. And, um, you know, both those managers, when I was there, um, I could identify with those those guys really well uh, because both guys, you know, had put in a lot of time and nothing was ever handed to them. And they're both very, very intelligent baseball people. Although although John Miserock and Mike Jersey had different personalities, um, they're both very relatable to the guys that were at that level. Because um, you can, you know, at that AAA level, there's, there's a lot of disgruntled guys. Everybody feels like they should be in the big leagues, although most of the time, you know, they don't. Um, but there's a lot of that chit-chat that goes around, and you need a manager at that level that that keeps guys in check but still is relatable so that those guys continue to play hard and stay focused. And um, I remember that although I was excited about having a, you know, being close to the big leagues and having a job again, you know, you're still getting frustrated because you know that you're working really hard. You know, you're oh so close. You're seeing injuries happen. You're seeing guys leapfrog you. Um, and you're just you're just trying to stay on, on track. And um, that 2001 season was was uh, a little bit of everything. It was building blocks. It was me get continue to be excited about the game, but also staying focused enough to realize that you know the dream was still you know so, so close. How did you like uh, Rosenblatt Stadium? Rest in peace. <laughs> well, it was you know what it was it was a mixed bag. It was um, from a player's perspective, it was kind of a dump. Yeah, you know, there was. The uh, the clubhouse was horrible. The facilities inside were horrible. It was cramped. Um, there was really nothing exciting about it. Uh, the batting cage was just mediocre. Um, the confines, the you know, the actual surface was was pretty decent. The the uh, the fences were really really favorable for me. Um, you know, it was 
it was a little bit aggravating and when the World Cultural Series came and finally they were fans and we got booted onto the road for you know, twenty six day road trip. That was aggravating. But, you know, as far as the city I, I um you know, really enjoyed it. We we would stay out, out west and you know, a lot of the guys would and there were some really great restaurants out there and a lot of fun and it was a really really good city for at the time my wife and then soon to be one of my you know, one of my children and uh, it was a good place that when we were on the road and you know they stayed there, we knew they were in good hands. So um, I spent more time in Omaha than than most people would want. You know, because you never <laughs> want to be in AAA. Right. Um, but if it's going to be in a in, in a good city, Omaha was you know one of the one of the better cities in the AAA to be in. Uh, you played in the 2001 Baseball World Cup. You started ahead of Jason Bay. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. But then, so you come back in 2002 to the Royals again, and that was the last season they'd spend at Baseball City. So by then, I'm assuming it was pretty much a ghost town and kind of run down. What do you remember about Baseball City? Well, I remember it being in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we had the guys up at Disney that were about 30 minutes to the highway, and then the other direction of the highway, there was nothing. Um, and then we were in Baseball City. It was It was kind of a ghost town. Um, I hardly knew anybody, so I stayed in the hotel. And, you know, I didn't have a roommate to stay in the hotel. It was close to the stadium. And it was, you know, in a a way, spring training is a fun time. You get to see all the guys, and, you know, you you enjoy the atmosphere. But for me, because I wasn't a part of that, I think it enabled me to go to the park a little earlier, stay a little later, uh, work a little harder. And it it was good because it kept me focused. Um, You know, but it wasn't wasn't my fondest memories of that. you know, a location in spring training. Uh, you'd go back to Omaha to start 2002, but then the call came on June 22nd. Uh, you were second in the PCL at 353 in batting. You had nine home runs and 50 RBIs. So take us back to that moment. You found out you were going to the big leagues for the first time. Where were you at, and was there a cool way you found out? Yeah, it was in Fresno. Cal- it was in Fresno, California, and we were uh, – I remember it was a night game. I was playing right field, and it was – it was uh, right around the time players were try- were finding out whether or not they had made the All Star the AAA All Star team. So there was a press leak the day before, or two days before, and I found out that I had made the AAA All Star team, and I was you know I was extremely excited about it. And I remember being in defense. We made the third out, and I started jogging in. And normally I'll instead of you know, we we were on the third baseline and. And most of the players will, will instead of going where the, where the manager is, you know, near home plate, they'll go to the, the far side. So as I'm jogging towards the far side, I can see several group, you know, several players kind of huddling around. And the first kid, first guy I saw was uh, Jed Hansen. And uh, he reached out and gave me a big hug and said, congratulations. And I, I looked at him and I said, thanks, I appreciate it. And he just looked at me and said, no, congratulations. I said, I, I already know I heard yesterday. And so I thought he was congratulating me on making the All-Star game. And then there was a big group of guys, and, and it was, you know, no, you're going to the big leagues. And I remember just, you know, almost being frozen because you just, you, you don't, you don't, you think you haven't heard the correct words. So you have to just kind of take it in. And then, you know, just to sit there with, with, um, and share it with guys like Jed Hansen and, and Mike Jersley and some of the guys that were there was, uh, was pretty special. And there was, uh, they allowed me to wait the half inning and then gather my stuff. And as, you know, to make that walk behind home plate because the the clubhouse is down the right field line. Um, and as you're walking down there, you've got your gear up. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's an extremely proud moment when you when your when your teammates are that excited for you, and the other team is able to watch you go. You know, and and uh, you know and, and admire kind of and, and be proud of what you're doing. It's you know, it, that's definitely a moment that I'll never forget because it was you know it, it was. A lot, you know, you wait a long time, and and uh, for it to come that way was was really special. Who was your first call? Do you remember? I'm sorry. Who was the first person you called? Do you remember? I called my mom. Okay. I called my mother. She was, you know, with 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 our family going through a, a split when I was ten years old, nine, ten years old, and um, you know, for us to for my mom and my my uh, two brothers, you know, the life that we went. My mom was my number one fan, and and and. You know, I was hers, and, and still that way. So to have her support for the whole time, you know, unconditionally, and just to know that as soon as that happened, that was my that was my first call. You ended up playing in seventy games. Then in two thousand two, up in KC, your first big league hit was off of Mike Maroff. First home run off of former Royal Jamie Walker. 
So what do you remember most about 2002 when you got there to the big leagues? Well, I remember both those hits. I remember Mike Morosity throwing me a little inside cutter and me hitting it up the middle and Jamie Walker in the 3-2, three 2-2 two, two, two fastball hitting into the, uh, into the, uh, into the fountain. Um, I do remember that it was the home run I hit was on a night game, and because it was into the fountain and it couldn't be retrieved, so I was a little disappointed that my first home run was was sitting out there. Um, only to find out that n- the next day during our day game, um, one of my teammates Chuck Knobloch, um, during the game when nobody was watching, went underneath the stadium, jumped into the fountains. <laughs> swam in there and retrieved the ball and put it in my locker. No way. So was, yeah, so it was, I was able to, uh, you know, it's not, it wasn't though Chuck and I had had, um, you know, just moderate feelings. You know, I had to hardly even talk to the guy, and, and uh, but I thought it was pretty cool of him to, to go and get that for me because, you know, obviously as a veteran guy, you know, you, you've already been through all those things and, you know, most guys just don't care, but for him to kind of do that, I thought was pretty cool. How did he do that without anybody seeing? How do you swim in the fountains during a game? Oh, the, the, when you're playing right field, you can smell it. You know, and if they've, they've got a pump of chlorine there, I know it's not, not healthy. I'm sure he, <laughs> he, he likely got some type of flu after that. But he, You know what? I didn't ask too many details. I know there's a whole bunch of balls in there. Most of them are scuffed up from batting practice. I don't know how he, you know, kind of what he did. But... Uh, I know that he went and got it, and I was appreciative. That's great. So 2003 was a very memorable season here in KC, obviously, and I'm sure for you, too. Um, unfortunately, you started back in Omaha to start that year. You missed the amazing first 20-game stretch, but you were called back on May 28th, spent the rest of the year, and you played every day, probably your best year in the big leagues. You let off. You hit uh, or you OPS to 835, 15 home runs, 52 RBIs. I think you were second behind Marquise Grissom and slugging, second behind, I think it was Ichiro and average. So how much fun was that 2003 season when you look back? You know what, 2003 was a, was a great time. Um, you know, I sit back here talking to you, and it's it, it went by really fast. But I do I do have some awesome moments and memories from that time. But it did go by fast. Um, you know, obviously disappointed to start the year back in AAA. Um, but it was you know, and you're always disappointed, and you always don't think you deserve to be there. But at that time, I think I think the organ, the uh, administration, the the front office. I think they were real in a real struggle for an identity, a real struggle to try to to get some positive kind of vibes and some positive momentum in in, in the in the city and with the team. So, you know, it, whether people would disagree, I think that although they felt like that I could be that guy in 2003 for them, I think from a I guess a, to justify it, I think it was hard for them to say. Aaron Gall is going to be our, our starting guy comes you know coming out of spring training. I think they needed to go with some more names so that at least um, you know when people were questioning, I think they could justify it a little bit more. So I think I think that had a lot to do with even though I 2002 didn't exactly finish the way I wanted to. I think I showed enough at least to get a glimpse in spring training. Um, so I was disappointed that didn't happen, but um, I, I do remember that that when I came up there was. You know, having guys like Michael Tucker and Raul Banias and Mike Sweeney and Joe Randa there, um, you could tell there was there was a core there that that could play some good baseball. Um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, there was there was a game against the uh, the um, rainout game, makeup game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. We played the uh, you know Randy Johnson. Yes. I remember leading off that. That uh, one, I I went three for three with the home run off Randy Johnson, and you know. It was, what I remember about that is, is is just having Tony Payne as a manager and just how amazing it was that here you have one of the best left-handers of all time, although his, although his velocity has was down, um, to have him show enough faith in me to not not only not bench me, but not slide me down the lineup. And so he had me in the leadoff position and, and showed that. And I, you know, there was, I thought that was a, a, a pretty amazing thing on his behalf. How sad is it that I remember that Brad Voyle started that game? I don't know how I remember that. <laughs> he did, and and Brad was another guy that wasn't, you know, he was he was in a group of Brad Voyles and and um, you know like Chris Wilson, yes, and Scott Mullen, and some of these guys who, who, you know, we were all just trying to we were all trying to get there. We were all trying to stay there. All trying to make a a life, a career, and, and um, you know, we 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 were all so appreciative of that opportunity, but 
you know, we wanted to keep it going. We wanted to find some way to stay there for longer than that season. And it's, it's tough. Do you remember, like, the city of Kansas City? Can you remember how much energy there was and how excited they were back during that season? Well, you could tell the people of Kansas City were hungry for a winner. They were hungry for a reason to to have some faith and belief in that team. And when we started, um, in 2002, we'd go, you know, I would go down with, with my, my wife to um, to the plaza, and we'd go down and put, you know, down in Kansas City, and, you know, not, people would hardly recognize you, but at the same time, there was a lot of positive talk about the team. In 2003, when we'd go down, there was a lot of change. You know, people would, would stop you and, and uh, discuss discuss how the team was going, um, you know, talk about how, how good things were going and, and just the exciting players. And, and they were, you could just, you could see people were, were waiting for a little bit of a turnaround. And, and we really felt like we were, we were heading in that direction. Yeah. Well, one of the guy I want to ask about that season was we obviously lost him way too young was Jose Lima. Uh, what kind of man was Lima time and, and what kind of teammate was he? You know, Jose was when, when I played against him, um, there was always this impression that he was a clown and and he wasn't a serious baseball guy and he was a sideshow. Um, and he's a guy when when he was pitching against you, you know I think a lot of his success were guys missed balls because they wanted to hit them so far. But as a teammate, he was incredible. As a teammate, he was he was uplifting. He was positive. He was energetic. Um, he was smart. He watched. Um, he's a, he's a very similar personality. Not to draw a parallel to a to a James Shields, but he cared about his teammates the way I hear James cares about about his current teammates. You know, he's I hear James um, will sit there and, and watch guys on their bullpens on an off day or you know things like spring training. Well, Jose would do the same. He would he could be in, uh, upstairs, you know, uh, watching the game on TV, but he he put on the stuff and he'd come watch the game and and cheer you on at the end of the bench. And you know, I think. Even though he was a starting pitcher and he only got the ball every five days, he was a guy that I felt had a positive impact on the team daily. I bet 2004 was probably one of your most disappointing years in baseball, both individually and, of course, as a team, too. But as a team, the Royals were supposed to be you know, contending that year and things ended up being miserable. And then you had division problems and you missed a large portion of the year. You had multiple laser eye surgeries. How bad was your vision before the surgeries? And was that something that had just been affecting you that year or before? Well, it had been affecting me before. You know, the the truth of what that whole situation was had to do with, um, you know, contacts versus no contacts. And in 1999, I had the same problem with San Diego, and they allowed me to get LASIK surgery. And it, it, it turned out really well. And, and I had that from, from 2000 on. But that 2004 season, um, one of my eyes especially, the prescription changed. I don't know why, um, but I had an astigmatism, so I tried contact lenses, I tried glasses, I tried everything, but my vision um, just wasn't—I I wasn't able to correct it. So because my vision and, and you know, although I needed corrective eyewear, my eyes were so dry that I couldn't wear the contacts. But um, the contacts would dry up and almost fall out of my eye. Um, so without that. I couldn't pick up rotation on the baseball. I really couldn't judge distance. There was a, you know, I felt like I was, you know, back in high school all over again. And so I was kind of torn between, um, you know, getting out there and, and, and just trying to bust through it and just trying to help the team and doing what was best for me. But, you know, being out there in that, with, with those conditions, you know, I realized now, man, I, you know, I felt like I kind of made a fool out of myself as, you know, not going out there. It's similar to a guy who, you know, has a really serious injury that um, that goes out and tries and hear, he not only hurts himself but he hurts the team. And I, I think I definitely hurt myself and I hurt the team. But the problem that I had with with that was that, including my my the, the staff, uh, our trainer there, uh, Nick Schwartz, who's there, you know, trying to convince those kinds of people that it was a legitimate concern and that it, it needed attention because there was no MRI that was going to show that my eye was that that my eye wasn't right. Um, you know, it was just basically the, you know, the, the truth was out there that my statistics were horrible and I wasn't tracking baseball. So, um, it was tough trying to convince people that, that I had legitimate, um, you know, reason not to play well rather than just, you know, I was, I was a poor player.
one good moment of that year was you hit a uh, game-winning home run at Toronto in the 10th inning. Do you still remember that game? Yeah, I believe it was. Was it Justin Spire? Yeah, yep, yep. And it was a it was a it was a cutter that came start outside, came over the middle, and it was right around center field. I, I do remember that one because uh, you know at that time there was not too many other bright spots, and except for that one, so that one was you know, those those kind of moments they really stand out. 2005, uh, you spent almost the entire year at Omaha, and you mashed the ball again. You hit 30 home runs. That was second in the PCL, 95 RBIs. But then the Royals didn't call you up until August 25th, even despite just having a god-awful season up here. Uh, how frustrating was that year, and, and how did you stay positive and grounded while waiting for the call that summer? You know, that was probably one of the most frustrating seasons ever because I felt that, that I deserved to get back. Um, I also... But I, I do believe that it had a lot to do with, you know, in 2004 that I probably left a sour taste in, in people's mouths about, you know, the way that I performed and the way the team performed. So they were, I think there was some reluctance to give me another opportunity. Um, you know, I might be wrong, but that's kind of how I felt. Um, you know, I felt like I was just plugging away and, and looking forward to, to maybe, you know, trying it uh, with another organization. So it, that one was, you know, although... When you had a taste of the big leagues and you had a little success in the big leagues, it's very difficult to take consolation when you go and have that success at AAA because you feel like that, tri- that success at AAA, the only purpose it is for is to try to get back up to the big leagues. So that, one, that year was disappointing. You also had 18 outfield assists that year. Did you like hitting home runs or throwing out guys better in your career? You know what? It changes. At the beginning of your career, you like to hit home runs um, near the end. You definitely take a lot of pride in some of the other stuff. You know, a lot of guys will take pride in stealing bases, and um, I got to the point where my arm strength actually got better as I got right around 30 or above. And um, you know, I, I took a lot of pride in throwing guys out, and it was it was a lot of fun. You played in both the 2006 and 2009 WBCs. What was that like? Well, again, it was another chance to you know to play for Canada and wear the colors and. They, the 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 really cool thing about the WBC was was that now you're 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 playing with the best of the best and um, and playing against the best of the best and we had we had um, we had such a, a great group of guys such great personalities we had Larry Walker as a coach and you know there was so much buzz about the tournament and um, there was so much excitement within the players and even that little camaraderie between USA Canada Dominican you know a lot of camaraderie with the and, and um, competition between the Mexican team as well, um, but that one, you know, it being down here and us having that uh, that game against the United States and beating them, and although we ended up losing to Mexico and and because of of the run differential, we we ended up being knocked out. You know, it was it was an amazing experience and and um, something I'll never forget. 2006 would be your last season with KC. You kind of yo-yoed between uh, Omaha and KC and then got waived, and I'm sure you were probably pretty much ready to move on at that point. Yeah, I was. Um, I was in Omaha, and, and I, there, was a, you know, there was a change within the organization where um, uh, Allard Baird had to let go and, and Dayton Moore came on. And, you know, I was in Omaha, and, and you know, one of my first meetings with Dayton was, was a sit-down with him and, he was letting me know that he appreciated, you know, what I had done in the past, and he had had heard but hadn't had a chance to see it firsthand. But but that he um, was going to have to take me off the roster to make room, and I believe it was for a pitcher that was bumped to the big leagues, so they needed my roster spot. You know, there wasn't a ton of disappointment because by then I think the writing was on the wall. So um, when I when I heard that, there's always a process where you're on waivers, and then. Then you're actually on, I believe it's 10-day, mm-hmm. um, I think you're on some sort of 48-hour waiver wire, and you can be claimed, and if you don't, then you've got to go through 10 days where they can trade or release you or, or retain you. So um, nothing happened first for the first two days, and I said to my wife, hey, let's um, let's just head home to Vancouver. we got, you know, almost two weeks before I can play again. So uh, we went back into Vancouver, and 10 o'clock the next morning, I got a phone call from, from Muzzy Jackson, who is the assistant general manager, to inform me that the Yankees had traded for me, and you know that I mean that they had claimed me off waivers, and and that I'd be joining them, and to expect a call from Brian Cashman, which came, you know, fairly soon after. So it was, it, it was, um, it was a it was a point in time where I knew that because of my salary from the previous year, 
I had a very um, I had a very high salary for a AAA player, um, and I thought that that would probably impede a lot of teams from trying to pick me up. Um, so I was expecting that 10 days to go and be pretty quiet. Um, but the Yankees called very quickly, and so I um, I had to turn around, hop on the plane, and and um, you know nervous, um, anxious, excited, and uh, join the team in Cleveland. Yeah, so you spent July um, until the end of that year as a Yankee. What was it like wearing pinstripes? Well, when you play against the Yankees, you always, you know, that, that when they come into town or you go into Yankee Stadium, there's you're intimidated. You know that those pinstripes, you know, it's it, it does definitely intimidate you. And and but there's also a lot of admiration because you you know the history, you know that the Yankees are always a, a strong and powerful team, and they will go and get guys that that um that they need to help them win so for me to be claimed for me to join them in that respect was you know was, if you, you kind of ask yourself hey, if you if they didn't go and get anybody why did they grab me um but i didn't know that i didn't know the circumstances surrounding you know their their claim but uh, i found out that hideki matsui and gary sheffield had both injured themselves and they were for long term and and um you know i I also knew and found out later that Tony Pena was, you know, he was a staff member over there, as well as Kevin Long, who was my AAA hitting coach, who was instrumental in in, in turning me around, and and in 2000, uh, I believe it was in one and two, turning me around and and helping me take that next step and become a good hitter. So both those guys were in the Yankees organization, and I knew that that, that really helped get me over there. I knew you weren't there uh, real long, but what was the difference like in dealing with the KC media versus the New York media? Because people always talk about the media difference. Could, could you tell us a player? Well, you know what you you could, and and you know from my perspective, um, I was always treated very well in New York. Um, there was there was very little expectations put on myself when I succeeded. It was what a great pickup he was when I hit a home run. You know how it was. If I didn't, it, it, there was no attention put on me because it was it was always shouldered by some of the bigger, more you know, more experienced players that were there. So my experience there with the New York media was was great. They were they were respectful to me. Um, if if I, you know, if, if I if I didn't drive in a player in a key moment, they asked, and it was usually um, you know a short question, short short answer, and they allowed it to just go. Uh, but a lot of the failures, if there was some. Always fell on on the Jeters, the A Rods, the Posadas, and you know all those other guys. So um, you know when I get back and I think about my time there, um, I actually was able to play free because those guys took all the pressure off of me. And although I played positions, I played first base, a position I'd never played before in my life. Um, I played in you know out of position and played in a in a place with intense pressure. I never felt it because I always knew that it was being absorbed by other guys. You decided to head to Japan then for the 2007 season, and then you'd play out the rest of your career over there um, with Noriaoki and the Swallows. What made you decide to go to Japan at that point? Well, what happened is that coming here at the end of the season uh, with New York, um, I, I knew that it, would, it was unlikely I would return. You know, I, my, 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 my stats were modest, um, and I knew I fulfilled a role that, that is important to a team like that. Um, but I did know that they retool and they bring in high-priced guys um, just to just to try to make a run at the playoffs. So I had I had discussions with my agent. I had I had discussions, and Japan had been on my mind for for a number of years. And um, I think certain teams were waiting for me to become available. So when the season was over and I was at home, I had started to get contacted by by major league teams and by Japanese teams, and we started to weigh the options and. Where it sat, um, I was informed by somebody that probably wasn't supposed to tell me, but they did anyway. That that I was going to be put on. I mean, I was going to be non-tendered at the deadline. And when that happened, a certain Japanese team was was aware of that, and they were going to make a run. So they, um, when the time came, I actually was non-tendered, um, and I was faced with a decision. My agent had um, two guaranteed major league contracts. Um, for, for for what at the time for me was was you know double league minimum or almost double league minimum it was, it was really good money or I had a contract in Japan that was one year guaranteed one year and an option but the option was was as long as I stayed healthy healthy was easy and the money was going to be probably triple what my major league you know what the 
the other two was going to be. So I kind of weighed it out, and at that point, I, my decision came down to the fact that I felt as though I had achieved what I wanted to achieve in the United States in, in, in Major League Baseball, although I was never a star. I felt like I got a chance to play there. I would always be a major leaguer. Um, I really had never been able to experience um, the job security that a lot of guys had, you know, both in my position and, and financially. And, you know, that, that takes a toll on guys. It's quite stressful. Um, in Japan, I knew I had almost two years. Plus, they, they, they rarely replace guys over there because it's just a long, drawn-out process. So I, you know, consulted with my wife, and, and we just we both decided that we'd rather go with, with, with the sure thing and the job security than another year of stress and the possibility I'd be right back at that same point, you know, next year as a fourth outfielder. So we went to Japan, and, you know, it, after the five years, I think it was a, an excellent decision. How did you get the nickname Angel over there? That, you know, when you go over to, to a culture like Japan, um, you know, we have a way of thinking. We have television, we have media, we have music, we have education, we have certain ways, and we see the world a certain way. When you go to Japan, the, all of those things are just a little bit different. So people think of players a little differently. They they think of people and, 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 and music and, and baseball players a little differently. So um, in the United States, people don't want to look up to baseball players because Everybody in the U.S. just feels like we're all in the same. We're all the same. We're, you know, we're just people over there. They actually like to look up to people. Um, there are, you know, and 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 Nori will tell you that there is. They they are okay with just putting baseball players and athletes just a little bit higher and having somebody to to really look up to. And so nicknames, you know, come through. Almost everybody has a type of nickname, and and they came. Actually, I think it was Aoki who who was the first one that told me that people call me Angel. And he never explained why, but um, there would be commercials where they would say, you know, Angel of, you know, Canadian Angel or Angel of Miracle or Angel of something, and, huh. and it just kind of stuck. But because my language, I didn't speak Japanese, I would get guys like Nori to come over and, and tell me really cool things that were being said on TV or in, in the, or through the fans. And, um, you know, I, I think over there, because I was appreciative of the opportunity, um, I was able to play with freedom, um, and I really, really enjoyed playing, and I had a smile on my face all the time. There was, I always made sure I had, had great interaction with the fans. They could see that I was enjoying myself. I think that a lot of the stuff that was said about me was positive, which I was, I was happy about. Did you watch Mr. Baseball before you went over there? <laughs> I did. We had, a little, we had a little screening at my house with my friends. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I was, you know, there was several players that had been in Japan or were currently in Japan, um, I called them and talked to them. I had Adam Riggs, who was a you know Los Angeles Dodgers farmhand, big league guy for an Angels big league guy for a while. I talked to him. Another guy, George Arias, who was a longtime friend of mine. You know these guys I had talked with, and they just had nothing but great things to say about the Japanese people, the media, the, the transportation, the facilities, the food, the cities. It was, um, and then when I got over there, I realized very quickly that they were all you know, it was a type of place that I knew I was going to enjoy. Huh. Two more questions about Japan. Um, I, I read a quote from you once where you said Americans were given a much larger strike zone, sometimes like eight to ten inches off the plate. Was that like every day? Was that pretty common? Yeah, it, it was. It was. If anybody tells you that it's different, they're lying because it's all you have to do. We have, I mean, with with media now, with with games on TV, and I'd have all my, I would have all my at-bats on DVD, and you could watch it. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Japanese umpires aren't trained properly, so it's a lot of a floating strike zone. But, you know, I've actually been told, and, and other guys have been told by umpires, that they call it a gaijin strike, or and one of my teammates was told that they have to have that strike zone to make things fair. Um, you know, but it is very, very true. And I can say that because I was there, I played, I saw it. Um, the guys that tell me it's not true are guys that, have never stepped in a box and never had that experience, but um, you know, it's you would experience where it'd be six, eight inches inside. Um, you know, it was balls would almost hit you and be strikes, and it wasn't all the time. And it was particular umpires. And um, over there, you can't turn around, you can't argue. They get really offended easily. They don't like to talk to you about it, um, and you definitely can't cuss. You can't because it's. As soon as they hear a cuss, that's the only English uh, English word they know, and they'll kick you out with a snap of the finger. So 
you got to be and the Japanese society is, is they it's it's big on honor so you don't want to dishonor one of the umpires because they definitely don't forget huh. well one other thing happened while you're over there well lots of memorable but one other super memorable I'm sure was March of 2011 during a uh, preseason game, a 9.0 earthquake hit, just a you know a big tragedy. Take us back to that day and what you remember and what that was like. Well, it was a spring training game, and I was in, in Yokohama. Um, we had a day game, and, and I, I believe it was my second at-bat. Um, I was on deck, um, and I, I always knew that the word for, for earthquake was, was jishin, so, um, and I had been through dozens and dozens of earthquakes, so it's when you feel a little rumble, it, it, it's 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 entertaining. You 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 stop for a minute, you wait for it to go away, and you just get on with your day. Um, and we, we've been in through some big ones, but that one, um, you know, I was on deck, and through the through the media uh, window, you could hear the the warning signs going off, and and you could hear that, that they were telling there was going to be an earthquake coming, and you know, a few seconds later, it started. And, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger until the point where, where I could see out by the outfield wall, I could see almost the earth moving as though it was liquefied. I could see the the stands were clanking together. It was it was really difficult to stand. You know, you had to drop to one knee. Um, you could see the high rise buildings in the distance swaying back and forth. It sounded like they were hitting each other because you could hear big crashes and cracks and bangs and booms. Um, you know, people were screaming and. It was it was as though you were in a, a really uh, like a high high priced sci fi movie or something and um, you know it, instead of being thirty to forty five seconds it went on and on and on I, I I think somebody said it was you know two or three minutes and we knew that it was much it was a different one that we'd ever experienced before um, the game was going to be canceled and you know all the foreigners we gathered out by the plate we brought people out in the middle of the field everybody was scared. But, you know, we were trying to call family members, but we really had no idea that we knew there was going to be damage. We knew that, you know, there might be a loss of life, but we didn't know what was coming. You know, we until they started to show there was a tsunami warning, and the tsunami was the main reason why um, um, most people lost their lives in, in that tragedy. Um, but the first step was the earthquake, which we thought was, was, was going to, everything was going to be okay. And then when they showed us what was actually coming, you know that was when the that was when the fear really took over and and people started to um, started to run around and seek high ground and really worry for their for their you know friends relatives and and just you know people. Was it tough to go back after that? Well, you know what, my family is extremely worried about me. Um, the reason I think things would have settled down and they would have things would have been dealt with if it wasn't for the you know, the the threat of the nuclear radiation from the plant. And we were in Tokyo, and, you know, it was 250 kilometers away from, at least that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's about 250K from the from the power plant. Um, and normally the normally the wind blows from Tokyo out that way and out to sea, but it had turned around. So there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of panic, um, including from my family, who was getting these reports from, from CNN and, you know, a lot of people in Japan were saying it was an overreaction. The U.S. Embassy was calling it an overreaction, but you know, how can you, how can you kind of downplay it? Because the Japanese and Japanese media have a tendency to hide the truth and deal with it, and they don't think that the general public needs to know or should know. You know, if there's some danger, that they'll deal with it, and if, if time comes, then they can tell people. So we were really in a, we were really in a tough spot, and so I ended up flying home for a week just to calm my family down and. And um, you know, my teammates told me that I was on the I was on the disabled list with a back injury anyway, so um, they allowed me to go home. Um, but I did return, and my family was due to fly there. Um, you know, ten days after we had to cancel those flights, but they ended up coming back. They ended up coming over there, and you know, it was a nervous it was a nervous season. My kids go to my my kids went to school at an international school in Tokyo, um, and you know, there wasn't a week that went by that I didn't. You know, worry about their safety and and um, and kind of wonder if we were making the right decision. Well, you decided to hang him up then and retire at the end of 2011, at age 39 after an amazing ride with baseball. But not really, totally, because then you were a player coach briefly with the Royals during spring training in 2012. But what about the future? Do you plan to get back into baseball someday? Well, when I 
when I stopped playing, um, I was in Vancouver, and I, 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 I knew I wanted to coach at what level and what commitment. I didn't know, and and that's when I decided to call a few people. I called Trey Hillman, who was a coach, who was a manager in Japan. I called Mike Jersley. I called several other guys, and um, I ended up talking to Dayton Moore. And the purpose of my call was to kind of plant the seed and say, you know, one day I think I'm going to be ready to come and coach. And, and um, you know, I just wanted to see if that door would be open. And after a you know, pretty lengthy conversation, he asked me if I would be interested in, in coming down to spring training. It was coming awfully close. So I, you know, I, I agreed and, and came down. And, and that, that season I, I ended up being their one of their assistant. I was player coach, but I was more of a, an assistant hitting coach down there in the, you know, the Arizona League. So it was a way for me to, to see if that was a transition I wanted to make. Anything so in the future, do you think you might do it again? or? You know what? It's, um, what I found out there was that, that I, love, I love baseball. And, you know, I definitely, the Royals organization from Dayton Moore to J.J. Piccolo and Scott Sharp and, and the, a lot of the coaches, just absolute class guys. Um, but one thing I realized is, is I love the players and i and I, I realize that I'm a I'm probably my skill set's more for a double and triple A type of um, you know mature mature player because the one thing that I could do is, is I worked hard and I and mentally I, I can I can help a lot of those guys. But where I was and it was a difficult fit because I had played for nineteen years and I knew that it was time to be with my, my wife and my children. Um, but the one thing that I knew is that as a coach not only is it, the, is it the, what you think is the same commitment as a player, it's probably more so. Uh, because if you're going to become a coach, there's only one way, one place really that most majority of coaches want to get to in the major leagues. And it's just as tough a road as a coach to get to the major leagues as it is a, a player. And the pay is just as bad, too. So it's, <laughs> it's something where I kind of weighed the options. Was I ready to, was I ready to, to dedicate the next 10 years of my life as a coach? Um, and sacrifice my family again, and uh, and go and do it, or or did I want to make a change? And I realized that that um, the timing for me to become a coach was in, in professional is probably not good. And um, I still would love to do it. Um, there's, I, I had a great time with the Royals, and the Royal staff, and you know the people there. But I realized that the timing wasn't right for me, and probably the the um, the role that I was looking for was probably gonna, should be different. I've had discussions with guys about maybe going into scouting and um, whether it be scouting in the United States or, or scouting for Japan. And I, and I think in the next couple of years, that's, that's probably the direction I'll go. Great. Well, last two questions for you. Thanks so much for all your time, by the way. Um, when you look back to your times here in Kansas City, um, what are your favorite memories both on and off the field? And have you been back here recently? I haven't been back since, um, you know, since my time you know, when I was there with New York. But what I loved about it is, is I felt like I was a royal. You know, I felt like the royals were my team. They were, they were um, the guys that were there. You know, a few years before me and a few years after, were the, it was the type of city that I wanted to play in. It was the type of organization I wanted to play in. Um, the guys I was associated with with the team. We played against other teams, and they just, they didn't. You know, you always, you always feel like, hey, I'm a Yankee or I'm a Cardinal or I'm a Dodger. You know, there's each team has a certain personality. And I always felt that the Royals were were the type of personality that that suited me best. And you know, I, I always I always felt comfortable when I was there. And you know, on top of that, I mean, you got an amazing stadium. You got you know great fans. You know, people are people are so nice in in Kansas City. Um, you know, and and I got a chance to experience some some awesome teammates. There isn't a better person on the planet than Mike Sweeney. Um, I got a chance to see. The, kind of the resurgence of Raul Vanez and look at look at how he's still going, um, you know. It's it was, but I also look at it as as it was a time for for me to, you know, it ended up because of my time there, you transitioned to my time in New York, which was you know way too short for my liking, but but that that there was was also an amazing experience. So I'm well, very fond of my time there. In closing, what would you like to say to uh, Royals fans listening right now? You know, that's a tough one. It's, um, you know, all the time has gone by. There's been a lot of years since I've been there. You know, it's uh, most of my memories of, of not only the, the amazing support that we had, and for, especially for a guy like myself, the support was amazing. 
Um, and for me to go out into the city and, and still get that smile and handshakes, you know, that's the stuff that, um, that you just don't forget. You know, a lot of cities, they have, they have fans that, that aren't as loyal, aren't as positive, aren't as supportive. And you know, I know that I know how lucky I am uh, or I was to, to be able to play there and for me to, to crack in there. It's, it, uh, for that to be my first experience was um, something I'll never forget. And I've got, you know, I still have the, the, um, pictures and DVDs and everything and you know every so often I try to to look over them and and show my kids and I just have just amazing memories and I'll never forget them well thanks for all that you gave uh the Royals organization and for all your time and definitely stay in touch and hope to see you back here in in KC one of these days oh that'd be great yeah it was nice talking to you thanks yeah take care you too